Well, we're in a series called Be God's People, and we're studying the Beatitudes. And in these Beatitudes, we're seeing how Jesus lays down for us these values of living in his kingdom. What it means to live in the kingdom of God and what is it that we cherish or value most as kingdom citizens. And so today we come to verse 9 and and this beatitude just says, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God. You know, uh, often I am, it is said of me rather, that I am my father's son. And that usually uh, immediately follows something I say or some kind of mannerism that I have or response that I give to something and they go, oh my goodness, you are so your father's son. Just to kind of give you an idea of how dangerous that can be, uh, the Harrison reunion is coming up this weekend when they shall all descend upon one place and it will be collectively the single largest gathering of acid-washed denim shorts uh, from the mid-80s that like were made and sold then but have been kept all these years along with gaudy, offensive Hawaiian flowery kind of shirts, but not the cool looking ones. And white socks and black dress shoes or black socks and white leather tennis shoes. So that's what I have to look forward to. Okay? That's what you have to look forward to. That's not so much what I'm talking about as much as those natural mannerisms, the way I speak, the things I say. And the reason people say that is because they know my father and then they go, oh my goodness, you're kind of like him, right? I want you to think about something with me for a moment this morning. What would you say makes you as a Christian look most like God? What would you say makes you as a follower of Christ, a child of God, as we just sang, makes you look most like your heavenly father? You know, one of the first things that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was, well, a godly life, holy living, right? And surely that is true, and there's great truth to that. But I think today I want to push against that a little bit. Because so often we can live a holy life and a godly life, but what we mean by that can kind of be only the way that we operate or the way that we think or what happens to us. And, and I think Jesus is pushing on us here a little bit this morning to say that really looking like God is not just about what you do in your private time and how you are personally or interpersonally, but it's about the way you live out your life. And, and, and he's, he's pressing on us here to ask of us, what does it mean for us as Christians to live in such a way that we look like God to the world? That's what I want us to consider today. Jesus says this, that Christians most reflect the nature of God when we live to make peace that we've received through him known to all people. That's what Jesus proposes to us today when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Now, I want to make two observations before I dive into the main body of the sermon this morning that are helpful just to kind of set up where we're headed in the message this morning. And the first observation that I want to make is this, that I know it's astounding. You'll be impressed, I'm sure. But the word peacemaker is actually a compound word made up of two separate words that Jesus combines into one word that gives it a whole new meaning. Peacemakers. And, and peace, the first part of that term, is just, it means a state of being. And, and that state of being is the opposite of, of conflict or hostility. Now, I think for the most part, most of you are tracking with me here. You're going, okay, I got that. That's not a problem. But I want to remind you as well of the background out of which Jesus would have taught about peace. Because it's not just the absence or or rather the opposite of hostility or conflict. But this idea of peace in the Old Testament was used with the word that we would understand of shalom. And, And shalom didn't just mean opposite of conflict or hostility. But shalom was a term that identified a comprehensive covering over all and in every area of a person's life. And so... This first part of the word brings this idea of this comprehensive wholeness or blessing of life because of its presence, okay? So that's the first part of the word, and what it's telling us is that peace from God in Jesus Christ blesses all of our life simply because we have peace with God. So we receive from him This wholeness of being, this favor, this blessing because of what we have with him. And I'll keep unpacking that as we go. Now, the last part of the word just literally means making or maker, one who makes or one who promotes, but it brings an intentionality to what they do. Like it's not just happenstance. It doesn't just kind of, you know, it's not an aura that gives off, uh, but, but rather it's something they intentionally engage to do. And so peacemaker is one who lives with an intentionality to bring this wholeness of God's blessing to all of life because they live under that blessing in their life. So that's the first observation about this beatitude I wanted to point out to you. The second one is simply this, that the uniqueness of the beatitude amplifies for us the weightiness of its importance. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is speaking. When Jesus speaks, that's important to us. He's our Lord and Master, right? So we listen to what he's saying. But this word peacemaker is not found anywhere else in the the whole of the Bible. Jesus is the only one who uses this word. It's the only time in the Bible that this word is used. For us as Christians, friends, that gives it an incredible amount of importance. And if you're around here very long, this is just kind of a personal side note. If you're around here very long, I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus was okay with creating new words. Because I do that on occasion. Usually it's when I'm rolling and an end needs to be put on a word that isn't typically placed there. And some people will go, hey, you know that's not a word, right? And I go, hey, you understood what I was saying, right? Communication complete. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing, but I'll use any justification I can to to be able to establish my okayness with that. 
But the uniqueness of this word amplifies. In other words, we need to tune in. We need to focus on what he is telling us here because it is something of critical importance for us. For a peacemaker is a mediator who labors to bring about harmony between opposing parties. And what he does in this beatitude, friends, is he sets forth the plan of God for a Christian's life in the way they should live and with that that they should give intentionality to with their life. Peace making. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Jesus makes peace with God for all who believe that we might make the glory of his peace known among all people. Jesus makes peace with God for all who believe that we might make the glory of his peace known among all people. Now, I want to consider what it means to have peace with God and how it is that Christians serve to make that known among all people. And here's a central truth that I want us to lay down that really, if you went back and you read all of the Beatitudes in their order together, you would understand that this has been established for us, even in the very order of the Beatitudes. But I don't want to overpass it because it's critical as a foundation for us. But the good news of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not only the message of the Christian life, but it determines and defines the mission of the Christian life. And what I'm saying in saying that is it establishes the purpose for which we live. In its all-consuming message. The Christian message defines the Christian purpose in mission. Here's what I mean by that. We live by this one glorious truth that Jesus made peace for us with God. And because Jesus made that peace for us, we can have a personal relationship with our Creator the author of life and the sustainer of life. The Bible tells us that because of sin, we are by nature God's enemies. Romans chapter 5 is very clear about this. And Romans tells us also that we're not only God's enemies, but before saving grace, we are hostile to the things of God in our own mind. Now, sometimes that hostility is more outward and recognizable and other times it's more hidden and just inward but nonetheless by our nature without God's grace we are enemies and hostile you see we owe a debt to God because of sin that we cannot pay we can't even afford it we can't make interest on it there is no effort by which we can even begin to put a dent in our debt to God and God seeing us in this state of separation and eternal damnation sent his son Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. And he sent him for us to pay our debt, to be a sacrificial payment, atonement, the Bible says, for us. And with that payment, the Bible tells us that he ransomed us for God. Jesus made a sacrifice on the cross and through that sacrifice, he applied it against the debt that we owed because of our sin. And in paying our sin, when by faith we trust in Jesus, 
He satisfies the righteous demand of God against our sin, removing the wrath of God and bringing the righteousness of himself upon us. This is the gospel, friends. And this is the way that we have peace with God through the free gift of eternal life. Jesus, Isaiah tells us, is the prince of peace. 800 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said, he is the prince of peace. He will bring a peace like none other because he'll bring it and make it by his own blood. You see, the gospel of peace with God through Jesus Christ defines the very purpose of the Christian life and of our mission in this world. What Jesus is telling us is this. The message of the gospel is the mission of God's kingdom. And that's what I want us to give our attention to today in studying this beatitude as peacemakers. How do we do that? How do we make peace? Well, it's a value of God's kingdom, peacemakers is, because the word itself demonstrates how the gospel serves as the defining purpose and mission of a Christ follower's life. Remember, friends, Jesus makes peace with God for all who believe that we might make the glory of his peace known among all people. And I want to offer to you in today's message three exhortations to help you understand not just the relationship between your new identity in Jesus and the purpose of your life in this world, but the glory of that and why that is a greater glory than you and I could ever attain to on our own. And it's more unimaginably glorious than we would even dare to conceive of because of what God wants to do in us and through us. The first exhortation that I want to give to you today is this. Peacemaking flows only from peace abiding. Peacemaking flows only from peace abiding. This first exhortation shows us the relationship between our identity and our purpose in life. For the peace that Christians make in the world is a peace that flows from the peace that Jesus has made in them. Our role in God's kingdom is directly rooted to our identity as his children. You see, sometimes we like to talk about the identity of a Christian and then we kind of put a period at the end of that sentence and we go to the next chapter and we talk about the mission of the Christian as if that's something we do for God. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that the peace that God has done for us is the same peace that he wants us to serve for others in the world. Therefore, our identity is not something separate from what God wants us to do in serving him, but rather our service to him flows out of his service in us in salvation. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Christians live to share God's peace through Jesus because we now live in God's peace. God just wants you to live out, Christian, what he's living in you. 
That's his plan. That's his purpose. And that's by his very design. I want to give you two passages of Scripture that, that, that teach this and demonstrate how it is that we live our lives in this new identity and allow this identity to be lived out from us that others might know God's peace. First of all, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right there. He paid our debt with his blood. He ransomed us unto God, reconciling us in relationship. And then verse 14 says what? For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, the first phrase of verse 14 there tells us this, that peace is not a present that we get from God, but it is the presence of God in us. He himself is our peace. When God is in you through Jesus Christ, by his spirit, his peace prevails in you. That's what he's teaching us here. And he is setting down for us. He's talking about what it means to have a personal relationship with God. That the closer you stay to Jesus, the more potent his power is in you and the more prevailing his power is over you. But the more you walk off on your own and the more you neglect that relationship with God and the more you diminish your need to abide in him, there's a reason that his glory begins to diminish and seem blurry to you. There's a reason that his word doesn't always seem right to you. There's a reason that his way isn't going to make as much sense to you. Why? Because you're trying to make something that you're not abiding in. And only in so much as we abide in him who is our peace can we live out a life of making the peace that has been made within us as Christians. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Paul goes on to explain this relationship of identity and purpose in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he uses two other words he says this in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see that? The purpose of life shifts from self to Savior. From me to Christ. But look at verse 17. Therefore, you know why that word is there? It's telling us this. A truth of God that is eternal has been established. That means we can make conclusions by which we live our life based, all of, based off of that which we know to be true in the previous verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a what? Say it out loud. New creation. Friends, let me tell you what Jesus does for you. He gives you a new spiritual DNA. If they could map your spiritual DNA without Jesus, it would have one pattern to it. 
And then by faith, when you trust in Jesus and God saves your soul and he counts you among his children, if they were to map it again, it would look completely different. You, Christian, are not the same person now because of Christ that you were without him. You say, well, I've got a lot of the same skin. My eyes are the same color. My hair is not. Um, Got a lot of the same personality traits. There's just a lot of me that is the same. And I would say yes, because God created you a way to know him physically. But he recreates you that you would know him spiritually. And the Bible tells us that when Christ saves us by his grace, the heart we had is not the heart that we now have. Ezekiel tells us he takes a heart of stone that is hard towards the things of God and gives us a heart of flesh that we might receive from him. And in that heart of flesh where we know him, he puts his spirit within us. We are a new creation. Not to go figure out how to do for God what God has put on us. But to go live with God as he is living in us. And there's another therefore. Verse 20. There's another conclusion that we understand because of the truth that has been laid down. Therefore, we are, I want you to say this word with me, ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. To God, Christians are new creations in Jesus, and we are made ambassadors of Jesus to serve for the reconciliation of people with God. We're not the Savior. We're an ambassador of the Savior. And our composition of our spiritual DNA is now new, changed from before because of Jesus. Christians demonstrate our spiritual genetics, friends, when we live to make things right among people because we've been made right with God. And listen, it is not a dull, boring, lackluster, whatever goes kind of of making. No, Paul says this, we implore you. I'm not going to stop. This is what I do because this is who I am. Because this is the one who lives in me. Friends, the only way to live as a peacemaker is to be a peace abider in Jesus. Colossians instructs us in chapter 3 verse 15 that we just read a while ago. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You know how the peace of Christ rules in your heart? Verse 16 tells us. When the word of Christ dwells in your mind continually. You see, the heart is not a port of entry to the life. Our eyes are. Our ears are. Right? Our mouths can be because we communicate in that way. Our minds are because as we capture all that information from all of those points of inflow, it gathers into our mind. 
and our mind is set to guide our heart, which the heart is not just the seat of our emotions, it's the center of our being in terms of what the scriptures are teaching us. When it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, it's talking about the, the center or the core of our being. And the only way that the peace of Christ rules in the heart is when the truth of Christ commands the mind. That's why when you live in disobedience or rebellion to God's word, there is a wiltering and a weakening peace about your life in the heart, Christian, because you are walking away from your source of life. And he wants to call you back in. The Christian life is sourced from and flows out of the heart. So what fills your heart fills your life and flows out of it. And the only way to persuade others of God's peace, friends, is not just to talk them into oblivion, but to live it out. To live it out so that your words make sense with what you're saying by how you are living. Listen, there is no greater convincing than a life who in the midst of all hell breaking loose around them and even to them find a deep-seated centering peace in Jesus in the midst of it and it matters let me tell you who it matters to it doesn't matter always to the people that you're talking to though it will matter to them it matters to the people that are watching you People that know what's going on in your life and they see how life seems to be dealing you some really sour moments and some really sour hands and yet you are unmoving. You, you're grieving and you're sad but you are unmoved and the peace does not leave you. That when people treat you with angst and they do you wrong and they stab you in the back and they, they try to step on you as another rung to better themselves at work or, or to make themselves look right and make you look wrong. And yet in return, instead of returning the favor and treating them as they treated you, you treat them as you would want them to treat you and you love them instead of giving you what they just dealt to you. people get that you know why because they don't have it and they want it and the testimony that that gives though indirectly is a powerful display of the peace that we have with God that we got not because we deserved but because God loved people get that living as a peacemaker in the world begins by peace abiding in Jesus. The second exhortation that I want to offer to you today is this, that peacemaking means that we as Christians learn to persevere in places with little or no peace. Peacemaking means that we must learn to persevere in places with little or no peace. Peacemaking often looks and feels more like war because it is. But here's what we know as Christians. We're not fighting to wonder if we win the war. We fight from victory because Christ has secured our victory. And when we wage war out of the peace that lives within us to make it known to others... We wage war with a power that cannot be defeated. John chapter 1 says this, verse 5, The light 
came into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And does this mean we have victory in every instance? And No, it doesn't mean you hand the ball off and you run for a touchdown every day, right? It doesn't mean that at all because the perfect victory will not be ours this side of eternity. That comes in the heavenlies where God resides. But friends, we don't labor from an imperfect victory even in this world. Though the evil one masquerades, seeking out prey, making people think he's right when he has no right in him, making people think that the lies by which he makes promises will never provide what he says. You see, Jesus is hes aware of all of this because when he came to the earth, before he ever began his public ministry, the Bible tells us he went out into the wilderness and three times Satan tempted Jesus directly and every time confronted, weak, frail, depending only upon the Father, He remained. Why? Because he was here to conquer the defeated foe of the evil one. And that's what he did. And then ultimately on the cross, it seemed as if maybe Satan got the upper hand. But on the third day when Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul tells us this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right towards the end. He asked this question. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting, grave? You have none. You've been stripped of it. You are a defeated foe. So friends, the very establishment of what Christ has conquered for us in the empty tomb is this. It grants to us the sustaining strength and hope that we can persevere where God leads us and where God calls us to make peace among those to whom he's given us. In those situations, in those circumstances, and in those relationships. Listen, it's not always what we think it is. Because Jesus, the one who is our peace, prepares us for the battle of peace making. I want to read to you a passage of scripture that I believe sheds great light upon this exhortation. It's from Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. Listen to this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Oh, wow. (laughs) So the whole point of today's message is that Jesus is our peace. But he's saying here, he didn't come to bring peace. What's he talking about? Is he opposing everything we're talking about today? Not at all. But he's setting in context the way we must frame our understanding of our life in order to engage where he is sending us. Verse 35, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Friends, here's what Jesus is saying. He's telling us that the peace he gives to us is greater than any peace we could make on the earth on our own terms. Does that mean Jesus divides every family? No, that's not what he's saying. It's really a matter of priority. 
And when we find ourselves in these situations, in these relationships or circumstances, or in these places of life where it becomes difficult for us, we've got to ask ourselves, is this where Jesus is leading us? And when that is confirmed within us, we need to know he will be sufficient for us in every way. He provides this clear understanding of what it means to live as a peacemaker. I I say this today, and I think it's critical because I think in our day and time, we live in a culture that has a high exposure to Christianity. And many of those exposures are not true representations I'm not trying to be condemning towards anyone. I'm just saying we've put the auspices of Christianity onto the comforts and conveniences of our culture. And we think we're okay with God because of it. And so when we who are genuinely Christians want to go and live that out, we think that there is no real conflict here, maybe small misunderstandings, but it doesn't require our intentional imploring of others to believe in Jesus because, you know, we're Christians. And basically, in that slight dismissal, Jesus is dismissed. You can't live that way, friends. What he's telling us here is that as the peacemaker, he's not afraid to make waves and he doesn't want his followers to be afraid to make waves either because the waves we are making are revealing the true source of false peace in people's lives. There are many wrong concepts of peace that prevail in our world today. These philosophies that we espouse. But peacemakers, we reject these philosophies as the peace that God gives because they do an end run and they subvert the gospel. And if it's not defined by the gospel, it's not the mission of the Christian life. Many hold to a laissez-faire kind of approach to the conflicts that arise in the world. And, and it's that kind of attitude where they just refuse to get involved and let them work it out. And whatever come may come. But, you know, I'll love them in the midst of that. But I'm not going to get involved in their personal situation. I'm not going to get involved in that relationship. I'm not going to speak into what I see and what I know to be truth or what I understand to, that God has said is sin. And I'm just going to let come what may. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We, we, we resist that because we know if everything works out perfectly in that situation, the peace of God will still be absent from it because Jesus has been dismissed. We, we counter even to oppose this philosophy of tolerance in our world today. That tells us that, that whatever exists, we just have to put up with it and learn to, to live in the house together, but don't interfere with it. Because it's not ours to step into. But let me tell you something. One of the loudest secular minds that speaks to us today through regular comedy, comedy routines, you'll know them as pen and teller, they themselves have said this about the Christian message, that the most unloving thing a Christian could do is to know what they claim to be the love of God and not live their whole life to make sure everybody knows it. Challenge accepted. We don't, we don't embrace tolerance 
as the operational philosophy that will make the world better. Rather, we love even those who don't want to be loved because we didn't want to be loved either when God first loved us. Another wrong concept is just to be an appeaser. Let's just, let's just make everything okay here and do whatever we have to do to make everybody happy and maybe that will bring peace at some point in the future. No, what the gospel tells us is if the means through which you pursue peace is not through the gospel, that which you get on the end will not be gospel-rooted peace. You see, what you're saying when you say that is there was another way. God's just mean enough and vindictive enough to kill his son. Sin's not really that bad. It's not really that important. But in fact, God says it is. It's important enough for his own son to come and to die to atone for it. And the way that we go about making peace in the world is a direct reflection of what we believe about the one who is our peace. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here, that, that we're intentional about this. And so we, we oppose these prevailing philosophies that offer substitutes of false peace because they are absent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And might I just say this, that wrong priorities will also justify us allowing a false peace to avoid our own engagement. This is how we do it sometimes because there is nothing that stirs passivity more than conflict. You know, if I said today, raise your hand if you love conflict, especially interpersonal conflict. You know, the only people that would raise their hands, I would have to meet with after because they've got issues. You know, not supposed to love it, right? But the gospel gives us the peace enough not to run from it either and to step into it and to pursue it. Christians are not peacekeepers, friends. We are peacemakers. We, we labor to end hostilities. And if we're going to end something, we've got to be willing to enter it, to bring the quarrelsome together and let God work out his peace in those involved. Peter tells us this in chapter 3, verse 11 of his first letter. He says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Christians willingly persevere where peace is absent in order to engage with the gospel and to make peace. We are ambassadors. Ambassadors don't live in their state of birth or their country or nation of origin. They leave their nation of origin and they live in the midst of hostility. Why? So that they can represent a voice of peace in a place of conflict. But Christ is sufficient, Christian, for you to learn to persevere and to endure where he calls you. Because where he calls you, he will be sufficient to sustain you in any and at all times. The third exhortation I want to give to you is this. Peacemaking multiplies the whole blessing of God. I just want to point out five really quick ways that as we live to make peace in the world, the gospel compounds our labors by the Spirit of God at work in the whole of creation and brings a greater harvest than we could have imagined. 
First of all, I reference that term shalom from the Old Testament. Peacemaking multiplies God's blessing in life in any and every area for all of life. So you may be talking to someone only about their relationship with God or only about a situation where you apply the gospel, but when they repent of sin and they trust God, God's not going to only bless them in that one little spot or moment of their life. The peace of God is going to begin to prevail and pervade throughout their whole life. And God's going to affect their marriage. God's going to affect their parenting. It's going to affect their work relationship. He's going to affect how they neighbor other people. He's going to affect how they live to influence other people for the gospel. And the gospel is going to pervade throughout their life. And God multiplies the blessings of shalom through that one life by speaking to us sometimes at only small points of our life. But showering his blessing in every area of life. Peacemaking multiplies God's blessing as we give generously and sacrificially. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world. And the so of the way he loved it was demonstrated by what he did and he gave. He gave his only begotten son. And when Christians live out of God's blessings, we live to bless others by giving of ourselves. Peacemaking multiplies God's blessing by displaying God's glory through beauty. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that it is beautiful, aesthetically striking, the feet of those who bring good news. Paul picks this up and applies it directly to those who preach the gospel and who labor for the salvation of others. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, when we labor to be peacemakers... We spread the glory of God through the beauty of all things that others might behold it and be drawn to him. Peacemaking multiplies God's blessings in the growth and the maturity of personal holiness. Romans 14, 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, Paul is teaching here that our labors in peacemaking also produce greater holiness and godliness, not only in our life, but in the life of others. And finally, peacemaking multiplies God's blessing and a harvest of salvation. James 3.18 tells us, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me tell you how that works. In the last seven days, I've had the privilege of sitting with seven different people who've prayed to receive Christ as the Lord and Savior. Now, I could tell you about how all of those came through and the different people they got connected with. But let me just say this. I was just the harvester. The, the harvest laborers were different people in our church who had been laboring to love, to share the gospel, and to see this come about. We heard a testimony back at Easter of one who had received Christ and was following him now because of a testimony he overheard in a restaurant of one of our people sharing with somebody else. Listen, when we labor to make peace with God among people, God multiplies that and compounds it in a way that we can't even fully imagine, but that he is always faithful to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to return, and I'm going to close with a quote. Kent Hughes, the longtime pastor of College Church on the campus of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, speaking of this beatitude, makes this statement. He says, The divine pronouncement, understood, taken to heart, and applied by the Holy Spirit, can not only bring inner peace to our troubled hearts, but also makes us instruments of peace 
peacemakers. It has the potential to give us peace within and to make us mediators of peace in the lives of those around us and in society at large. Friends, Jesus makes peace with God for all who believe that we might make the glory of his peace known among all peoples. Are you, Christian, making peace with your life because of the peace you have from the life that lives in you? And I would say to you today, if you're not a Christian, I'm not even going to ask you if you want peace. I've never met somebody that didn't. Would you receive peace today? His name is Jesus. And he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you and he'll bring the peace of God into your heart and life if you'll repent of your sin and put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, help us today to look to Jesus and him alone for all things. Grant to us the peace that cannot be given anywhere else. And let us glory in you through that peace. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord.